Hi, this is Skip Stewart, and this is another podcast of Connecting the Dots. Uh, once again, my name is Skip Stewart, Vice President and Chief Improvement Officer with Baptist Memorial Healthcare. Hi, everybody. I'm H.F. Mason. I'm a general surgeon and chief medical officer here at Baptist Memorial Union County. And hey, everyone, I am Jake Lancaster, an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist system. Well, guys, today we are so blessed to have a very good friend of mine, Rich Sheridan. He is one of Menlo Innovation's founders and chief storytellers. He's given well over a thousand talks to audiences around the world and written two amazing books, one called Joy Incorporated, How We Build a Workplace of uh, Workplace People Love. And then a second book that I really enjoyed called Chief Joy Officer. Uh, Rich, we are so thankful to have you. And uh, please tell us a little bit about you and about Menlo Innovations and about your story, if you would. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys. Um... My life is a technology life. I grew up as a kid in Michigan, uh, touching a computer for the first time when I was just 13 years old, way back in 1971. Computers were a little different back in those days. Um, but I was hooked. As soon as I touched them, I thought, boy, this is the future. I want to be part of it. I want to learn how to use this stuff. And so I really threw myself into it. Uh, ended up winning a programming contest for what would now be termed fantasy baseball way back in 1973 and uh, landed my first job before I could even drive a car as a programmer. I couldn't believe people would pay me to do this thing I'd love to do as a hobby. Um, and then launched a career shortly after graduating from the University of Michigan in 1982. I climbed the ladder from programmer after graduation 1982 to vice president of R&D in 1997. And I truly had what the world would look at as a very successful advancing career. All, anything the world measures as success, I had. Stock options, paycheck, authority, title, promotions, bigger office, larger team size, everything. Um, the trouble was there was another line and by my mid thirties, I didn't even want to be in the industry anymore. Uh, my heart was breaking for an industry that I quite frankly thought would carry me for a lifetime. And the divergence of that obvious material success uh, that often the world yearns for and the success I was personally seeking in my own career uh, was mainly caused by what I would now term as chaos. Uh, chaos in the software industry mm -hmm. was rampant uh, for so long. It still is, quite frankly. Uh, there's not many uh, pages one, two, and three of the Wall Street Journal where you don't see some big story about some catastrophe inside of a corporation because of a security issue, because of a a glitch. <laughs> it was just one of those the other day. Um, and uh, that makes the life of the technologist insane. Uh, you are often cast in a role of firefighting. And uh, most of the fires you're fighting are ones you've set previously uh, because of poor quality practices, uh, poor uh, understanding of the people you intend to serve poor execution of the work. And so by my mid thirties, after so many 
just a cascade of long nights, weekends, all-nighters, I started to burn out. I started to really lose my heart for this industry that I thought would carry me and my family for a lifetime. And so I was looking for an escape. Um, And yet my inner optimist kicked in and I fundamentally believed there was a better way of doing things and was customary. I was determined to find it. Uh, As I like to say, my inner optimist kicked in and I was stuck in a room full of manure and I was going to keep digging till I found the pony because I knew there was a pony in here somewhere. And so uh, my journey out led me to authors and books, but not books on technology, because quite frankly, technology is trivial compared to how to organize human beings effectively into teams and get those teams to execute well. And so the books I was drawn to were books on management by Peter Drucker, uh, Tom Peters' books, uh, In Search of Excellence and the ones that followed. And uh, Peter Senge's book, The Fifth Discipline on the Art and Practice of Building a Learning Organization. I knew after reading those books that there was absolutely a better way. Unfortunately, the books really didn't tell you how to do it. They just described kind of the general outcomes that a lot of great companies had uh, succeeded at over the years. So I saw hope. I saw, you know, uh, a path. I'm wired. I'll know it when I see it and I'm patient. I will persevere. I will just keep pouring my spirit into looking until I find that thing I'm looking for. And around about 1999, when I was a VP, had been a VP for a couple of years at a tired old public company in here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, um, I read a book, I saw a video, and literally had what I call a click moment where suddenly everything became clear and I changed the way me, the company I worked in, and the way my teams work into a way that looks a lot like the company I run now. I got two years to run this experiment between 1999 and 2001, literally transformed a public company to a new way of working. I wasn't the CEO there. I was a VP of R&D and uh, might even still be there to this day had the internet bubble not burst. And in that moment in 2001, when the entire NASDAQ crashed and all these high-tech firms were closing up shop, I lost my job. Uh, The California parent that had bought us had to shutter every remote office they had. And I came home, told my wife I'd lost my job. Uh, She uh, looked at me with tears in her eyes and she said, you're unemployed now? And again, my inner optimist kicked in. I said, no, honey, I'm an entrepreneur now. And um, and at that point, uh, while I could lose everything again, the world measures the success, the job, the title, the authority, the stock options, the parking spot, the computer, the office, the key that opens the door. They couldn't take away what I learned in those two years. And what I learned is you can avoid the chaos and the bureaucracy that most organizations are tortured by and trade it in for an entirely new way of thinking about leadership, a way of thinking about systems, uh, a way of putting things together in a simple, repeatable, measurable, visible way that literally lifts the human energy of your team, lightens up the bureaucratic workload, keeps people focused on your purpose and diminishes fear as much as possible. And so in that balance of equation, uh, Menlo was born and uh, we've been running that way ever since. Uh, It's been 19 years now for us, 
the pandemic itself has presented some interesting new challenges to us like it has everybody else. Uh, but I will tell you for since 1999 to today, joy is back for me. And um, maybe the best evidence of that is that my kids look at me, uh, they're all adults now, and they say, Dad, you'll never retire. I'm pretty sure they'll drag a lifeless, smiling 95-year-old guy out of Menlo someday. And I like it. I love that my kids can see my joy for work and what I do. And that's, um, you know, while it probably isn't necessarily the goal, man, it is a great measurement tool when your children can see it in you. And so I can, you know, talk with you guys a lot about all the things we've done, kind of what we don't do, uh, and um, about our process and so on. But ultimately, we founded Menlo with this overarching mission, big one. Um, I'll describe it in the negative context first, and then I'll describe it in the positive one. What we want to do is end human suffering in the world as it relates to technology and teams. Suffering for people who do the work, suffering for the people who use the results of the labor, the end users of the software. Almost all of us have been tortured by software. Certainly the medical community is often tortured by software. Uh, we just didn't want that. We wanted to literally create delight and joy not only in the creation process itself, the how of how we do it, but also in the ultimate results and the people we serve, uh, the end users of the software we build. We want them to love the end results, and it, and they do. Uh, and it is not produced by heroes. It is not produced by a heroic system filled with heroes. It is produced by a simple, repeatable, measurable, visible process uh, that involves a lot of systems thinking. And quite frankly, there's so much obvious to the way we do things that, um, you know, most people remark, well, why, don't, why doesn't everybody do it like this? Uh, my wife uh, works at Menlo now, and she often says, I, I don't understand why, why everybody wouldn't work like this. Uh, there are some very unusual aspects of our culture that uh, I'd be happy to discuss with you that make it very different. I think that is really fascinating. And you know, so we were discussing earlier that I am I'm the chief medical information officer. So my a lot of my job is to try to make or, or enable the satisfaction with the electronic health record for the physicians and, and other providers within our system. And it is it's a very big challenge. Very, very few physicians are, are satisfied with it and, and none, I would say, would find joy in it. And one of the things I, I gave a presentation earlier this year to our medical staff had a quote from the book, the, the Mythical Man Month by Fred Brooks, mm -hmm. talked about uh, complex technologies and software and the tar pit. It's not it's not one large glaring issue that causes the dissatisfaction. It's a combination of hundreds of small things. Mm -hmm. One of the issues I feel like with the technology side in, in healthcare, specifically the, the EHR, is that the customer for the system is not just the physicians or the, the nurses, whoever, whoever else is using it. Your customers are uh, you know, coding, legal, uh, quality and safety, just hundreds of other groups, external agencies that all want to design the software in a certain way that gets their that gets the results they want. 
Um, and my, I was searching my mind to think about another industry that had a similar piece of software that was used by so many other groups. And, you know, one of my questions is, do you know of another industry where they do use software in that manner? And what sort of things are they doing to <laughs> instill joy in it, um, <laughs> if it's possible? Well, you know, when you, when you, um, hear us describe our mission to end human suffering in the world as it relates to technology, uh, you, you probably would agree with me. We've picked a beer, big, hairy, audacious goal. Uh, we, we know we can't do it by ourselves. Uh, so quite frankly, uh, we teach others how to do it as well. So part of our mission isn't just to do it for our customers, but to actually explain and teach our process to others so they can do it for themselves. And so that's been a big part of our um, outreach to the world throughout our 19 years is to actually share what we've learned with others so that in fact, uh, they can bring that joy themselves. Because there are many, many industries that are effectively tortured by software. Uh, an easy one to identify, uh, is the manufacturing industry, uh, people who make widgets and parts, and particularly if they're particular, uh, you know, complex parts, uh, you know, automobiles, for example, um, they are often tortured by their version of electronic health record that's called an ERP system, uh, an enterprise resource planning system, which coordinates all of the uh, arrivals of their suppliers. They coordinates the inventory in their warehouses and their shop floors, and it coordinates the shipping of the finished goods to the next stage of the process. And so not totally unlike an electronic healthcare record uh, that has to coordinate um, billing systems, shipping systems, and of course in EHR systems, pharmaceutical systems, billing systems, uh, patient care. Um, you know, and intriguingly, of course, uh, the one constituency you didn't mention uh, in that is the patients themselves, that we all personally now have access to our electronic healthcare records. And I can tell you just from even recent personal experience, uh, had a kidney stone about two weeks ago, <laughs> and I'm getting reports from the ER department where I was treated. And... Um, you know, they're using terminology that I don't understand, and I'm a pretty smart guy, and I could probably figure it out. Um, but it's clearly not written for me as a consumer of that information to be able to take, call it confident action on my own based on that report and so on. So you always are left feeling like, uh, I'm a passerby. I'm a, I'm a passive observer in my, in my healthcare, um, uh, you know, management my own personal health care because the record doesn't actually work for me. No, it makes perfect sense. And, you know, one of the other things that we were discussing at that, that presentation I was doing was the, the systems that get the highest ratings are the ones that do one thing and do it really well. Like Google uh, has, you know, really high ratings for search. And it does that incredibly well. But when you move out along the spectrum and you get to something like Microsoft Excel, which has a much lower rating, it's because it does thousands of different things and people find it a little intimidating to, to use. And, and EHRs are on the a little bit past Excel on that, um, that little graph just showing that they do 
and other thousands of things and, and maybe they don't do any of them well unfortunately but um, it's just the complexity of the system um, and, and the number of customers that you're that you're that are using that that or tend to I guess lower its rating as compared to others that are more simple. Well, and the other aspect of the EHR um, in general was that there was this um, <laughs> amazing moment in the nation's history where there was a government edict that thou shalt move to electronic health care records within a certain period of time to get to meaningful use. And if you meet the deadline, we will compensate you greatly for having met that deadline. And so what you had was very few systems out there uh, and very few implementers of the system understand how to do it. And now all of a sudden, every healthcare system in the nation needed to implement one of these. And you literally stripped the system clean of the people could actually do it. And uh, there were there were been moments in the software industry in the past like this, where in some sense, the people who got to work on implementing them uh, literally, they were checking for um, uh, temperature, pulse, and breathing. And if you could do all those three things, you were an implementer of an electronic health record system. And of course, uh, the, many of the people, I mean, all fine professionals wanting to do good work, but had very little understanding of the environment which you guys live every day. Mm -hmm. And it's very challenging for um, software uh, to be designed properly. And by design in this case, I don't mean the internal workings, that's hard too, but I'm talking about the, the design that the users experience. What is the, you know, whether it is the physician, the nurse, uh, the billing practice within the healthcare system, the patients and so on, um, all the people who are connecting the codes to the uh, insurance systems and so on. Um, most software, which is actually frightening, is designed by software engineers in a whiteboarded conference room without ever talking to the people who are going to use it. And, um, and, and of course, they're smart people, but what they understand is computers. And we know this because we've been subjected over the last 50 or 60 years in the software industry um, to being to calling the people we ultimately serve stupid users and then we write dummies books for those poor people and that should be evidence alone of a systemic problem with how software is designed because uh i remember one time we were working with um gosh a document management company and <laughs> who was delivering their systems to pharmaceutical companies filled with PhDs. I mean, that was their target market. And the PhD users couldn't figure out how to use the software. And so this company called us in and said, could you help us make the software easier to use? And we said, sure, why don't you have somebody come in and explain to us about your systems, what your goal is, who you're serving and all that sort of thing. And they brought in one of their sales guys and he starts presenting to us. And he pauses real early on in the presentation. He says, now, the one thing you should know about our users, they're as dumb as a bag full of hammers. Like, really? That's fascinating because I'm pretty sure all your users have PhDs. Yeah, yeah, I know that, but they're really dumb. 
they just don't understand software. Well, it isn't that they don't understand software. It's that the software engineers build them, build software typically to make it really easy for other software engineers to use. And only less than 1% of the planet understands how computers work. So we shouldn't have to make users understand how computers work. We should make the computer understand how the users work. And so we told this company, we found your problem. <laughs> it's your attitude about your users. Um, so we invented an entirely new practice. It, it falls under the broad umbrella of what a lot of people refer to as design thinking out of companies like IDEO and Frog Design and so on. But we apply it to software and we call it, we gave it a special name, we call it high-tech anthropology. It's all about studying the people we intend to serve, learning their vocabulary, learning their goals as human beings, uh, learning their workflow, and then iterating with them on a design by showing them what we think will work and then finding the mistakes along the way. And instead of trying to point out to them, no, no, you used it wrong, watch this over here, our anthropologists learn to bite their tongue and take a very um, humble attitude about their own designs and look at the user who's turning their neck as they look at this potential design. And our anthropologists learn to say, so what were you expecting it to do? And the users then will say things like, well, what I was expecting was something like this or something like that or a button over here that says this and I'm not finding it. I'm like, oh. And then we're use, typically using paper-based mock-ups for this sort of thing. And what we do is we literally grab the design out from in front of them, put a new button on it with a pencil, put it back in front of them. They're like, yep, that's what I touch right there. And that's the way we iterate on the design, just like we iterate on the software builds that we do. And by the time we get done, and it's a beautiful thing of good design, people look at it and go, well, this isn't that big a deal. Obviously, it should work like this. Why would it work any other way? <laughs> Those are the best designs in the world, right? The ones that nobody sees anymore because they're so obvious, you just use them the way they were intended. Mm -hmm. Rich, you, um, you talk about organizations and whether it's a, a software company or a healthcare system or an automobile, uh, manufacturer and you talk about forces that are acting on an organization and and I love your analogy to the forces that are acting on an airplane you have you have lift and gravity and thrust and drag and and you talk about the the lift of human energy the 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 gravity or weight bureaucracy the thrust of purpose and the and the drag of fear could you take just a couple of minutes to to maybe give us a little what you mean by those? And um, yeah, I really found that that really helped me. Awesome. Yeah. It, you know, it, I think as I get older in life, uh, things look simpler today than they did when I was 40 or 50 years old. Um, and after I wrote Chief Joy Officer and started preparing myself to bring the message out to the world, this very simple model of human organizations developed, which I then compared to the forces that work on an airplane. And if you think about those forces that you described, lift, created by the camber of the wing, weight that holds the plane down, those are countervailing forces, one over the other, thrust of a propeller jet engine that pulls us forward and drag that holds us back, 
if that airplane is going to get off the ground successfully every day in variety of conditions, we better have lots more lift than weight, and we better have lots more thrust than drag. And so I just started looking at that and saying, I think human organizations operate very much the same way. So I talk about the lift of human energy. When I think about the lift of human energy in an organization, I also think about that may be one of the most squandered energy sources on the planet. The Gallup Group often uh, measures uh, engagement, and it's typically 60, 70, 80% of people are disengaged at work. And that is obvious evidence that we have not managed the human energy of our teams. You know, how many times have you heard a boss say to somebody, do your job? That's why we're here. That's why we pay you. That doesn't lift up the human energy of a team. You know, there are things we can do. Clarity, for example, can be a big deal in organizations. If I understand what my role is, what I have to do today, when I walk in the door on a Monday morning, do I understand what my first and top priority is? Giving people the ability to go to work and get meaningful things actually done not a 20 things started, not five things plates spinning all at the same time, but the ability to focus on something that we know is important, that is my top priority, and I'm actually able to get it done. And at Menlo, one of the things we focus on is literally the, the managing of avoidance of burnout. It's a big deal in software. It is not unusual for programmers to work 60, 70, 80 hours a week. You know, when Obamacare first came out and the healthcare.gov was launched, um, uh, and it, it was a disaster at first, right? I mean, healthcare.gov was just a total unmitigated disaster. And, uh, you know, the President of the United States comes before the nation talking about bugs and glitches, and I can tell you those were not bugs and glitches. That was a total disaster of a system. And then he said to the nation, don't worry, I have people working 24-7 to bring it back into order. And that's when I started worrying, because I can tell you in the software industry, he didn't, he, what he wasn't saying is, we're going to have three shifts working on this. Oh, no, 24-7, those are the same human beings working around the clock. And tired people make a lot of mistakes. You guys probably know this in the medical profession. Sure. We're not going to have tired people. So interestingly for us, and we actually confound Brooks Law, we actually think it's a quaint reminder of a system poorly organized. We never work overtime. We work 40 hours work a week, 19 years, no overtime. I, I won't say it was like absolutely zero, but it's so unusual that we'd have a dozen cases where somebody worked overtime and probably almost never more than 50 hours a week. And certainly not over and over again. There might have been a week where they worked that much. And the primary purpose of this is to preserve their human energy be able to bring their best and brightest self to work so they can actually do good work. And I will tell you, quality problems start to disappear at that point. The weight that holds us back is the meaningless stuff we do at work. The weight that drags us down is the weight of meeting load, running from meeting to meeting to meeting with no decisions being made. If decisions are made, they're never acted upon. That really can deplete the human energy of your team. And so those two forces are big deals if you're going to get your human organization off the ground. Now the question is, why are we here? What are we doing? Who do we serve? How would What would delight look like for them? And the way we organize that is this idea of thrust of purpose. 
focusing on an external purpose in an organization, understanding who we serve, what would delight look like for them. And interestingly, in many cases, this is not the people, they are not your customers, your employees, or even your shareholders. they are people beyond those people, right? For us, the people we serve and that we aim to delight are the end users of the software we create. People who never pay us for what we do. They're, you know, their corporations pay us to build the software. Uh, they typically don't even know who we are. We typically don't meet them in large numbers other than the few we meet in our high-tech anthropology studies. And when they're using the software, we may not typically hear about it unless we get the anecdotal evidence. But when that anecdotal evidence comes in that people say, I love this software, that's joy for us. That's purpose. That says we have delighted the people we intend to serve. And then the drag that holds us back is the drag of fear. You know, and I'm not talking about the stuff we should be afraid of. You know, that's why we're wearing masks or looking both ways when we walk out onto the street, that sort of thing. Those are things we should be afraid of. I'm talking about how we've all been taught in our management careers to try and motivate people with artificial fear. A raised eyebrow at a meeting, a heave of a sigh, a terrible annual performance review process that uh, typically confounds the idea of teamwork because it favors individual performance over performance of the team. And there's so many dumb things we do as managers uh, to, um, to try and motivate people with fear that uh, it ends up keeping people distracted from the purpose. And that's why I refer to it as the drag of fear. That's, that's really interesting. Um, and, I, you know, in, in our organization, when you talk about the drag of fear, we're, we're trying to create a, a just culture. And, and we want we want people, we want nurses when they do have near misses and when they do have when they do make a mistake. We all we're all human and we make mistakes. We want them to be able to come forward without fear of uh, fear of retribution or fear of, of uh, punishment. Uh, and, and that that does hold people back because you know we want we want to know the mistakes that we're making, but so that we can fix the systems and fix the processes that uh, that are are leading to those mistakes. Yeah, and often you know one of the easiest generators of fear in an organization is a term uh, that many organizations use called a KPI, key performance indicator. And the trouble is, all KPIs are rearview mirror. You, you, once you measure them, there's nothing you can do about them. They're all in the rear view mirror. And all attempts at management, we have to do better. We must do better. We will do better. It's like, how are we going to change the numbers from the past? You know, it's why I love um, the um, Covey book by Chris McChesney called The Four Disciplines of Execution. Uh, a KPI is a lag indicator in their world. It doesn't mean we should ignore them, but you cannot focus human beings on lag indicators. It just doesn't work. And uh, so what they look for are what are the leading indicators? And so I'll give you a simple example that worked out so well in my life. Um, uh, in my workouts, I was trying to hit uh, 1,500 meters on a rowing machine in five minutes. And I would just focus all my attention on the number of meters going by. That was, and it was a lag indicator. Uh, and, you know, every time I, I pull and I pull harder and everything and um, uh, and uh, I, I'd, I'd end up short. I'd be like 
30 meters short, 20 meters short. I just could not get over 1,500 meters no matter how hard I tried. And my instructor, uh, I had turned him onto the same book, and he comes up to me and he taps me on the shoulder one day, and he leans in and he points to another number on the machine. He said, consistently you keep your wattage above 300 watts on every pole. That's something you can control. That's a leading indicator. And I'm like, oh, I can do that. Didn't even look at the number of meters going by. And for five minutes, every time I pulled, I was just trying to get us get me over 300 watts, and I could do that. It was actually pretty easy. I could feel what 300-watt pull felt like. I could do it every single time. When I started to tire, I knew I'd have to put more energy in my legs. And all of a sudden, I just blew past 1,500 meters. I blew past 1,600 meters. And I'm pretty sure i would have gotten up to 1700 meters had the pandemic not hit and it's just amazing how much difference there is when we figure out the right kind of indicators to look at rich if i can uh, i know we don't have a lot of time but i want to ask this question for you know we have around 180 clinics uh, what we call the baptist medical group and uh, i know that dr mason in addition to being the surgeon has a clinic and this story just goes against all kinds of paradigms that we have. And it's my favorite story in your second book, Chief Joy Officer. And you and I uh, met uh, almost by mistake and we started talking about systemic thinking and Dr. Russell Lakoff and the fifth discipline and Dr. W. Edwards Deming. And you told me this story as you were typing this second book in in this uh, little restaurant of a hotel. And and then uh, I told people this story and they always think I'm talking about some kind of futuristic example. And I'll say, no, 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 no. This story happened like in the 70s or 80s. And you know what I'm talking about with your yeah. children. If you would share that story. You bet. Yeah, during my chaotic years, uh, I started to, my wife and I started to build our family at our first child, second and third child. And uh, when she was pregnant with our first child, um, she said, Rich, it's, uh, we have to go meet with the pediatrician uh, ahead of, you know, the birth. And I said, well, why? She said, I I'm not quite sure. Uh, it's an interview. I said, okay, who's interviewing who here? <laughs> and so we went into the good doctor's office and we sat down with him in his office very kind gentle soul that he was and he looked at my wife and i and we were obviously young and this is our first child so maybe a little nervous and naive and he's the first thing he says to us he says so tell me about your child I'm like what and then i looked <laughs> looked across at my wife looked down at her belly and looked back at the doctor and i said you do know that baby's not born yet, right? He goes, oh yeah, I know. But you already know something about your child. I said, like what? He says, well, is the child active all the time or only when you're hungry? Does music calm the child or not? And my wife just picks up on this in an instant. She goes, no, every time I eat, baby settles down. When I play the piano, baby's very calm. And he smiles. He says, see, you know some things about your child already. So I'm kind of fascinated with that little exchange. <clears throat> so the first well baby checkup comes and I'm not gonna miss it because this doctor has just been fascinating to me. And uh, cause there was a whole bunch of other things we talked about in that discussion. 
And uh, so we show up and um, uh, we get to the appointment. It's a well baby checkup, so it's planned. And we walk into his office and we are the only parents in this office with our child. And I thought, wow, <laughs> I remember pediatric clinic visits when I was a kid and it was chaos. Those snot-nosed kids running everywhere. If you weren't sick going in, you were definitely going to be sick coming out. And there's no other parents or children in this office, just us. And right at the appointed time, 10 o'clock in the morning, he walks out of his office. I see another set of parents walking out with their child. And he calls on, he says, Megan Sheridan, which I thought was adorable because that was our daughter's name. She doesn't know her name yet, but he's calling the patient's name, not the parent's name. So we go into the office and uh, he starts telling us about what he's going to do. And he says, oh, by the way, uh, we're going to give her a shot today. It's going to be her first vaccination. and." Um, and he said, there won't be any tears for any shots any of your kids ever have with me. I'm like, what do you mean? He says, all the shots I give, there are never any tears. I said, well, how does that work? He says, it's very simple. He says, we're going to lay her down on the table. You grab a piece of this examination table paper, Rich, and hold it about a foot over her head. And as soon as I put the needle in her thigh, she's gonna, her eyes are going to go wide and you're going to tear the paper. That will distract her, and as soon as she watches the paper, you pick her up, you take her over to this mobile, you pull it down, and it'll start ringing a song out uh, from this little mobile, and it won't be any tears. I'm <laughs> like, okay, this is amazing, right? And so, sure enough, exactly what happened, three kids, all the shots they ever got, never a single tear the entire time. And uh, so at this point, you guys can imagine the way I think and the way I like to learn things. I am just fascinated. So I'm never going to miss an appointment. And every single time we were there, well, baby or urgent because of a sore throat and earache or anything like that, there were never any parents in the waiting room. And at, the, at this point, you have to understand I'm leaving this pediatrician's office to go back to chaos at work, all that chaos I was talking about earlier. So I'm watching this bifurcated world. Here's an office that should be chaotic, and it's not. Here's an office I don't want to be chaotic, and it is. And all I can think of myself is i got to figure out. i got this burning question in my head about this doctor. I thought, he's either a really, really bad businessman, because he's clearly a great doctor, or he has a system. And all of this is intentional. And I never asked. I never thought, I mean, I never thought I should take them out to lunch or anything like that. But I just, the years went by, our kids grew up, the practice, you know, we stopped going to him because they were older. He retired. He moved off to Walker, Minnesota. I lost all contact with him. And then when I'm writing my second book, I started writing this story. And it dawned on me, I got to know. And I thought, oh my gosh, Google has been invented since my youngest daughter or my oldest daughter was born. I can Google this guy, Dr. John Gall. And I find out, yes, he's still alive. Yes, he's still living in Walker, Minnesota. But what came back blew my mind. Dr. John Gall is one of the world's leading systems thinkers. 
He has written so many books on systems thinking. He was a professor at the University of Michigan Medical School. It was all intentional. Wow. And he's actually, he's famous for what's called Gall's Law, uh, which is actually used more in the software industry than any other industry. And Gall's Law, we have emblazoned on a conference room at Menlo. And it says this, a complex system that works invariably evolved from a simple system that worked. A complex system designed that way from scratch can never be made to work. You have to start over with a working simple system. Now, at this point, I literally write an email to the good doctor reminding him of who I was. Don't know whether he actually remembered me or not from all those years ago. And I asked him if he'd read my book, and he did, and he endorsed it. And then I was visiting the University of Minnesota to give a talk, and I asked him, could I come up and see him? And he invited me to his house to spend the weekend, and we talked about all these stories again. And he told me, yep, everything was intentional, Rich. I would look at the data. I would look at how many, you know, what season of the year was it? How many patients do I have? How many appointments do I have to set aside that I should anticipate that uh, kids are going to call in with the earaches, with the sniffles, with the fevers, and all that kind of stuff? And that's why he ran his practice the way he did. It was all systems thinking, and it was beautiful. Everything about it was so joyful. Everything was about it was so comforting to young parents, uh, kids, whether they were just trying to keep them healthy or whether they're trying to get them back to health. And uh, you know, I'm delighted to say I got to his house in October, and by early December of that same year, he passed away. So I was, I was actually the last visitor to his home in Walker, Minnesota. But uh, there is so much to learn from Dr. John Gall. Uh, you can read his books. He has so many of them. Uh, he was a prolific reader and obviously a prolific writer as well. Uh, but, you know, that just cemented in my mind this idea that Peter Senge fostered and others and Deming that uh, simple, repeatable, measurable, visible systems are what can keep us on track. We don't need heroes. We need good systems. And quite frankly, hero-based organizations, the biggest problem with them is when something goes wrong, you look for someone to blame. When something goes wrong in a systems-based organization, the leaders ask, how did our systems allow this to happen and how can we improve them? What a great, great, I love that story every time. Story. Uh, you know, and one of the things that we're constantly trying to promote with the name Baptist Management System mm -hmm. is what is a system. And so, you know, our, even our 11 guiding principles, we try to encourage people that you can't look at them independently but they have to be interdependent. You know, I'm not going to be able to drive systemic improvement or, um, you know, scientific thinking if I'm not first showing people respect, and if I'm not leading with humility, and if I'm not showing empathy. Our CEO talks about empathy quite often. And so I love that story. I just, it just still blows my mind there. And I've read the book several times and, and just love it. And I'm just so grateful. Uh, Dr. Lancaster, Dr. Mason, uh, I don't want to take up too much of uh, Rich's time. Any additional questions before we kind of wrap up today? Oh, no, I just uh, I looked on Wikipedia for Dr. Gall. And so I'm, I'm interested in following up and, and seeing what he's done. That, that was fascinating. Thanks for sharing that. You yeah, I was going to do the same thing, Jake. Uh, that's what I was going to say. I'm going to Google him yeah. for sure. 
Well, so thankful, Rich. Uh, I can't recommend your books enough. I know I've handed many of them copies out throughout Baptist and just so thankful. I know you're busy during these uh, crazy times that we live in, but I'm so thankful that you're always willing to give. It's become contagious because you've always encouraged me to go out and give. And so like this week alone, I've spoken to four different uh college student university groups you know different and just uh you've been such an encouragement to me and i'm just so grateful for your friendship and uh we could i could literally talk for hours but i'm not so sure people would listen to the podcast for hours but uh thank you once again for your day for your day thank you for your time and thank you for your friendship thank you skip thank you dr lancaster thank you dr mason it's been great spending time with you all thanks a lot rich thank you yeah.